Welcome to the Association of Insurance Compliance Professionals podcast. AICP serves the insurance compliance community by promoting relationships, exchanging information, and providing learning opportunities within a dynamic regulatory environment. You're listening to Effective Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Training Programs for Organizations. In the year and a half since the George Floyd murder and ensuing social uprising, organizations of all kinds have shown increased interest in learning about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Many firms endeavor to offer training and education programs for their employees in this area. Join veteran DEI consultant Cindy Chambers of Solution Arts, whose professional expertise spans 25-plus years of consulting in the areas of diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility, and Thomas Hauk, a subject matter expert in regulatory compliance for insurance and financial services at Thomson Reuters, as they dig deep into the topics of DEI learning and development, consulting, and change. Cindy and Thomas both gratefully acknowledge the expertise and resources available on these topics at the Equity Literacy Institute. Find out more at www.equityliteracy.org. And now, here's your host, Thomas Hauk. Well, hello, everyone. We are here today with Cindy Chambers from Solutions Arts. And Cindy and I are going to discuss best practices around diversity trainings for corporations or really for any organization that you're involved with. DEI trainings, DEI being diversity, equity, and inclusion are becoming a big thing. Cindy at Solutions Arts has much experience in this area, so I'm looking forward to her being able to share some of her expertise and experience with us. But first, we'll give our listeners a little bit of a history about how Cindy and I even know each other. We go back quite a ways. In fact, I think it goes back to a different century where we had worked together, Cindy. Absolutely. <laughs> we were both, I well, I was a volunteer at the, at the, what was then called, and this is really a relevant part of the discussion anyway, it was then referred to as the Los Angeles Gay and Lesbian Center. I helped run a program there where we had discussion groups around different topics affecting the gay and lesbian communities, such as safer sex, social equality, all, you know, all sorts of different things. We worked with, you know, kids who had been kicked out of their homes for being gay or lesbian. And anyway, Cindy at one point had become my supervisor. So I first knew her in a, in a supervisory role. And Cindy, it was really funny because you and I had sort of one of our first bouts at diversity and inclusion in some of the discussions that we ended up having, because you were suddenly put in charge of a group of gay men, some of whom did not really understand why was there all of a sudden a woman in our midst? <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of resistance to that, as I recall. There was a lot of pushback on that. Yeah, and it was it, it was a really interesting situation because, you know, here we were trying to do this work with social equality, and then all of a sudden, you know, because of this person who was employed by the center and was there, you know, as our supervisor, and it wasn't like you were there to tell us how to be gay men, you were there to kind of help run the program. And, you know, there's a lot of logistics that have to occur for that sort of thing. So we had, you know, the, we had, there was a little bit of an uprising. And I remember that I kind of got involved in helping kind of wash that a little bit. And that's kind of how you and I became friends. Yeah, you demonstrated great allyship. Actually, I would say that you were an accomplice. And we'll talk about the difference between the two, which to me was uh, even more powerful because you not only stood with me, but you took direct, important and powerful action to shift that tide. And that was a really remarkable moment. That was a moment that sort of cast the die or however you say it as it was in our friendship, right? 
Right. And also professionally, it turned out to be a good thing for me, too, because you ended up getting me into Georgetown Law School over that. So you know, <laughs> I was applying to law school at the time. And so I said, hey, Cindy, you know, I need a I need a stellar recommendation. You think you can write me one? And so you you wrote me not only one recommendation, but two. And you let me choose which one I liked better. And I still actually still have copies of those I should show you sometime. So but um I think hadn't I promised? Did I promise to buy you a house or something after I? Became I think a you high? did promise to buy me a house. I'm still waiting for it. I also think that at different times I've asked you if you have framed that because I think that recommendation should be framed and put near the front door so when people walk into your house you can point to it and say all this was built on this recommendation by Cindy Chambers. <laughs> well, it was the pinnacle of my professional success. It's all pretty much been static since then, but that was that was a high point. <laughs> Thanks for being part of it. I was happy to. I was happy to write that for you. So great. Okay. Well, anyway, so so Cindy is you are the I guess you are the founder and and do you call yourself the CEO? I call you the CEO of Solutions Arts. Why don't you just tell our listeners a little bit about what your company is and what you do? Sure. So I call myself the principal, um, Solutions Arts LLC, and we are really the essence of who we are is a collective of international experts committed to delivering performance improvement. Now, for most people, what does that mean? That's what I hear from them. So our clients experience this as a, from us, a desire to innovate, improve, learn, and grow in partnership with them to tackle and overcome their biggest challenges. So oftentimes we see their biggest challenges in things like custom learning and development, organizational development, diversity, equity, and inclusion training or consulting, and then registered apprenticeship consulting. So diversity, equity, inclusion, obviously being a part of this, I understand that you've been involved both in arranging trainings for organizations and I think doing some of the trainings yourself. Is that correct? That's correct. So we do not only training, but we also do consulting. And if you think about it in this way, sometimes we engage with clients who they're at the very beginning of this journey, because it really is a journey. It's not a one-off. If you're truly committed to making sustainable change, then it is a journey. And so sometimes when we engage with clients, what they need at first is just to kind of figure out what they don't know, you know, looking at uncovering their blind spots. And so that starts with some consulting. We get to know them better. We begin to ask, you know, really pertinent questions. Each of those questions, we dig in deeper. And there are a variety of things that we can do. Sometimes clients will come to us and say, you know, we know that this is really important, not only to our mission and vision, and our employees who support and deliver on that mission and vision, but also to the clients and customers that we serve. But we just don't know where to begin. And that we hear that often from people. We don't know where to begin. We just know we need to do something. And so oftentimes it starts with some consulting. And then from there, we could help them create their own roadmap, be a guide for them. We also include within that oftentimes custom learning and development that is diversity, equity, inclusion focused training. Yeah, it's it sounds like there are just so many options in the area so that part of what your role is to help focus them in on what they actually are gonna benefit from. Absolutely, and you know, here's the other thing I think I know is really important to say. 
is that anyone who does this kind of work, if they're truly committed to doing it, they are constantly learning themselves. So I always say, you may see me as the expert, but every time I have an engagement like this, I learn something new and different. And I always want to be growing and learning and doing better. And so we go in and work with clients and we learn from them. And what I like to reinforce within those teams is that those are rooms full of experts. So they know a lot about their environment. They just need to sort of see it from a different angle. And we're there to help guide them to do that. And then what we learn from that, we can reinforce the kind of change that we need and want to see through custom training that is focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Right. Well, so, such excellent points, especially about the fact about everyone continuing to learn and grow and how that's such an important part of this. We're never going to know it all. And, right. um, you know, it's important to remember that. So let me ask you, when a new potential client first approaches you, it's obvious that today DEI has really become a thing, right? With the George Floyd murder and then the subsequent uprising, all these companies kind of want to be on board, at least a lot of companies do. They want to be on board. They want to show that they're doing the right thing. And so they want to get engaged and organize a DEI training, DEI education for themselves and their employees. Do you find often that when clients approach you, that's really all they know and they haven't really thought any further about it? And then they're looking (laughs) to you for guidance about, well, where do we go from here? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great point. And, you know, we're still hearing that a lot. We're also, one of the things that I like to, to recognize in this work is that right now people are hungry for these kinds of conversations, this kind of work, and truly moving the needle. And so one of the things I want to impart upon your listeners is if what we had been doing for all these decades leading up to this was effective and really worked, we wouldn't be where we are today. And now is the time for us to sort of turn this upside down and look at and do things differently. Mm-hmm. Because if you're truly committed to this work, like the people that I work with, the collective of industry professionals around the globe who have been doing this work for a very long time and are constantly looking at ways to create sustainable change, if you're truly committed to that kind of work, then it is important to you to make a real impact. And so with that, we only engage with clients who are really committed to this work. We don't engage with clients who want a check the box because there are still those those organizations and those leaders within those organizations that exist. How can you how can you tell if someone is in that category of the check the box category? Right. Yeah, it, that's a great question. So what what you see and what you hear is that they want you to come in. They want something that basically is an off the shelf product. They do not care about outcomes. They do not care about accountability. And I imagine they may not want to pay for it necessarily. (laughs) They may not, or action steps, and they certainly don't want to pay for it. They want it to be, uh, you know, sometimes you want to use the word affordable rather than cheap. But in this particular situation, (laughs) I'm going to tell you they want it to be cheap. They want it. They do not want to put their money where their mouths are. 
and they don't want to be held accountable. They also don't want to have the awkward, uncomfortable conversations. They don't want to be held to account. And so, yes, all of those things. Let me ask you then, so for the companies that do approach you and that you do decide that this is valid and we do want to work with this company, what is the best way to get started? Oh, that's a great question. And actually, because of that question, I'm going to kind of back us up for a second and start at the very beginning, which is really important to define terminology. Language is ever fluid, right? And so we have these assumptions or expectations that everyone understands exactly what we're talking about when we talk about anything. And I find it's very important to start by defining terminology. We do this in our consulting work. We do this in almost all of the training that we do. And I imagine that that's a kind of a crucial part of the training in itself is getting everyone uh, speaking the same language. Absolutely, because we want to create a common language. And to me, that's the first stop on this journey. So if we look at this as a pathway where we're on this path for a lifetime, we want to start at the very beginning of the path, understanding what the road signs are going to say as we move along the path. In order to do that, we have to have common language. And language is fluid. So these terms will potentially change and grow and shift but if we create a common language for ourselves, with the clients that we're engaged with, and then encourage them to do that within their cultures, then everyone understands what we're talking about. Can we just give, and I don't, I don't want you to give away your whole training here, but maybe can you pick like a term or maybe two terms and just talk about just defining those terms for just so that sure. people have an idea for what we're talking about? Absolutely. So let's just start with diversity, equity, and inclusion. Perfect. And so when when we're talking about diversity, because even for this term, people have all sorts of different definitions. And what we like to do is start with like a baseline understanding. So for diversity, what we're talking about are the people. So that's the mix of people. And it refers to the human factor. And it may include things like race, gender, religion, sexual orientation, ethnicity, nationality, socioeconomic status, languages, ability, age, religious perspective or lack thereof, political perspective, and so much more. So again, we're talking, when we refer to diversity, we're talking about the mix of people. And often organizations mistakenly believe that all they need to do to satisfy a stated commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion is to hire more BIPOC, which is another term meaning black and or indigenous people of color. And seldom do we see significant hiring throughout all levels of leadership in these kinds of scenarios. So this is another example of that check the box activity and not a demonstrated commitment to champion diversity, equity, and inclusion. So that's diversity. Then equity is the next one. And people oftentimes get very confused about this. People tend to think or believe that when we talk about equity, we're talking about equality and we're not. So here's a definition that I'm actually going to read to you because I love this definition and it comes from the Equity Literacy Institute. I want to give them all the props. They're a great organization. Look them up. They do fantastic work. And a lot of the work that they do 
is around higher education and education in general. Well, we'll put their, let's put their link in the bio, as they say. Yep, we will definitely put their link in the bio because I want to give them a very heartfelt shout out. But they have a great definition that I use and that their definition for equity is this. Equity is about individuals, relationships, and systems. An organization that is equitable is one which we value and honor each person for who they are and provide the structures, environment, and resources each person needs to fully participate and reach their greatest potential. Equitable organizations see their role in and contribute to the long-term impact of creating a more just world. So what this is saying is it's calling upon each of us to recognize and understand the root causes of outcome disparities within our society. And oftentimes we can identify inequity easier than we can identify equity. So what's the difference? Inequity is an unfair distribution of material and non-material access and opportunity resulting in outcome and experience disparities that are predictable by race, economic status, gender identity, home language, or other dimensions of identity. So again, hat tip to the Equity Literacy Institute. One of the things that they point out in the work that they do, and I absolutely 1000% agree, is that inequity is predictable. Racism is predictable within the organizations and culture that we exist. And so because we know that it is predictable, we know that we must commit to and do the work. It starts with uncovering the root causes of the disparities, dismantling and attacking those, and then doing the continued work along that continuum. So another thing that I would just want to mention before I go on to define inclusion is that what's important to note here is the commitment to action outlined in this equity definition. And this particular definition by this organization really highlights the process of distributing access and opportunity to be fair and just. And again, that predictability of racism that exists within our structure, systems, and interactions. So think of it this way. If the meteorologist tells us there's a 100% chance that it's going to rain today, we prepare accordingly, right? There's 100% chance that inequities exist across our structural, cultural, institutional, socioeconomical, and organizational entities. So we are then, all of us, called to action to dismantle these inequities. And how that's different than equality is that equality is giving everyone the same, assuming that it levels the playing field, and it does not. And then lastly, inclusion refers to who you welcome. So we think about who has the seat at the table and how well people mix. And most recently, inclusion represents a practice of ensuring that people feel a sense of belonging, value, and connectedness. Let me say this another way. It's an outcome. And when Diverse people express feeling fully able to participate in and bring their whole selves to the situation and environment, then we have achieved a certain amount or certain level of inclusion. So diversity, equity, and inclusion, that's kind of that bubble that we begin with. And then from there, there are 
new approaches that DEI thought leaders have brought forward in an attempt to do things differently than how we've done them in the past. And one of those things that I mentioned in this, this definition of inclusion is an approach that we refer to called belonging. And I could spend like the next hour talking about that alone, but that is a piece again of taking new tools, applying them, creating this common language, giving people a sense of what we're talking about and how we begin to move forward. Those are definitions that are certainly worthy of a, of a college syllabus for, uh, <laughs> I mean, that's really, it's, it's outstanding. I'm sitting here trying to furiously take notes in my head, but, you know, I imagine that the content involved in this can be overwhelming for people who are new to this conversation. So you mentioned outcomes as part of the inclusion aspect of DEI. So I imagine when a client comes to you, you want to talk about outcomes from the outset, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Are there some simple outcomes that you want your clients to keep in the forefront of their minds? Right. It is specific or unique, somewhat unique to each different culture. And when I say each different culture, I mean each different organizational culture. So some of our clients that we've engaged with and are engaging with are already capturing metrics around things like conducting focus groups and gathering data from that. They're collecting data from their engagement metrics. They're collecting data from different kinds of surveys and things that they do. There's a variety. Most organizations, if they're larger than 50 people, they're already gathering data and information. And what do they want to do with this kind of data? Yeah, and that's the thing, right? Is that, you know, I was talking with someone about this the other day, which is you can do focus groups and surveys till you're blue in the face, and people will tell you how they feel about the environment in which they spend a large majority of each day. They will oftentimes be very honest, especially if it's uh, anonymous surveys, right? And if you as an organization and leader and leadership do nothing with that data, with that information, it's a wealth, it's, it's worth its weight in gold, you know, that's, that's really important stuff. Right. And if you choose to do nothing with it, people are going to eventually not participate in those because right. what they know is year after year after year, when you do an employee engagement survey and they tell you you're mucking things up and you choose not to address that, one, they're not going to participate again. Two, they're going to see the writing on the wall. And we are in a time, three, of the great resignation where people have had enough. That's the other thing that I want to also say in this moment, which is we talk about the different generations that are in the workforce. And I, for example, am part of Gen X. And you know we have millennials and the Gen Z. And I would say without overgeneralizing, that's certainly not what I want to do. It is safe to say, because there's enough data, that part of Gen X, certainly a large majority of millennials and then a greater majority of Gen Z, are communicating very clearly that they want to work with and in organizations that 
truly have a demonstrated commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And if you don't, sayonara. Good luck. You're on your own. And, you know, and that's something also, as you know, myself being a proud Gen Xer, you know, that's one of the things about our generation that was sort of a hallmark for people our age was that we kind of put our heads down, we grumble a lot, and then we kind of just do the work, you know, sort of resigning ourselves to live our lives of quiet desperation. Exactly. And, uh, you know, and I think, you know, generations that preceded us were in some ways the same. I think Gen X kind of had, there were, there were some important differences, but I'm not going to go off on those tangents, but it, it is refreshing to see the, the generations that are following us that are starting to, they're giving us their list of demands. Yeah, they really are. And, you know, and it's, it's basically our job as the supposed leaders to try and, and make that happen. I would just want to say really quickly, a hat tip to them, right? Because I have the greatest respect. I learn something from them every day. And they're really, it's almost like they've taken the good parts of us and then they're moving forward to create real change. And I have the greatest amount of hope in them. And I know that they were handed very few tools. And so it's very seldom do they hear anyone saying anything good. So I, this is an opportunity to do that. Yes. Hooray, millennials. So obviously doing a training, defining terminology is one of the key parts of it. What in terms of choosing a trainer or an organization that has training available what is your advice to a potential customer in looking for a diversity trainer? Yeah. You know, let me kind of like lay this out in a list because I know you and I both love lists and we're probably not the <laughs> only people who love a good list, right? Yes. So let me give you a list of the things that I think are important in choosing a DEI training vendor and or consultant. Okay, and we'll have to number these so that we can, you know, advertise this as what are the top five things, you know, we'll, we'll get the most clicks that way. So, all right. So let me, let me see. I'll One, keep, two, three, four, there are four. Okay. Yeah. So there we go. The top four things to choose a DEI training vendor and or consultant. And now I feel like we need a drum roll. So the first one, number <laughs> one <laughs> is needs analysis. And what that means is, do they ask a lot of questions? And if yes, great. You want them to ask a lot of questions, including some or many that may make you feel uncomfortable. If they're doing that, then they're doing the work. If they're not asking questions, you could be getting a vendor or consultant who isn't practicing real change, but rather checking a box and gathering a check from you. Okay. Right? I love that. I really, I'm, I'm, I'm already excited. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, some organizations and some leaders may be fine with that. And obviously they are fine with that, but your teams, uh, your people who are your greatest assets won't be fine with it. And eventually your brand will reflect that truth. And then number two on our list is continued education. Do they make professional and personal growth within the field of priority. So in other words, the, the person, the vendor, the consulting organization, the people that you're looking to work with, are they committed to professional and personal growth within the field? How do you know? Ask. 
and ask to see their certifications. How often and with whom did they do this professional growth? So why is this important? There are lots of reasons. I'll give you three. With an increased demand for DEI consulting services came an increase of people and organizations jumping into the space. So we talked about that briefly. There is money to be made here, right? Exactly. So some of those people who jumped into the space came with great intentions and that guiding principle to create real sustainable change. Others, not so much. You want to invest your dollars in those consultants, vendors, and organizations who challenge the status quo and make a commitment to continual growth and development. And this field is rapidly developing and desperately needed to rapidly develop, which makes it hard to remain on top of everything. So you're not looking for a know-it-all. You're looking for someone who continually challenges themselves, especially if this person is white. So let me make a clear distinction. Let me pause here for a minute and make a clear distinction. I don't want anyone to take away from this piece about continued education that you should hit BIPOC people over the head with certifications and professional development. That's not what I'm suggesting here. They have a lived experience. Do not do yourself a disservice by uh, hitting them over the head with certifications and asking them that you're going to lose potentially a really great partner if you do that. What I am saying is particularly white people, you want to make sure that anyone that you're working with, they have done this work. And I would want to know if I was hiring someone who looked like me to come in and do diversity, equity, and inclusion work, I would want to know what kind of training they did, and if that training was hard-hitting and not fluff. And so you ask questions around that. You can also, when you ask questions, you can Google, search, and look up information about that kind of training as well. Okay, so you want their resume, in other words. I want their resume, but I want to know that they have done some really deep work. So, for example, I mentioned the Equity Literacy Institute. They do not do fluff training. And already in this year alone, I have taken three separate professional development courses from them. Excellent. And I'm not saying that to like pat myself on the head or the back. I'm just saying that it's important to me and it should be important to you that someone who looks like me continues to grow and learn and do this work. Right. Understandable. Yeah. So that was number two, which was the commitment to continuing education. Right. Exactly. Number three, framework of action and accountability. So we just talked about continued education. It brings me to another point. I want to make sure that we include this work is everyone's responsibility. It will take all of us to create real sustainable change. And change will never happen if this work falls on one person, one department, or a specific race of people. And so a good consultant will not approach this work with you and your organization as a check-the-box activity. They'll partner with and guide you to do the tough but necessary work. And part of that will include specific actions that you outline together and an accountability system to identify those measurable outcomes. 
without measurement, we're just spitting in the wind. So you want to know that this consultant or training vendor will help guide you to create a framework of action and accountability. Because again, it goes back to that piece about if it's just check the box, right? why waste my time? So what you're saying is that the customer should want the consultant to hold them accountable. Yeah, exactly. In fact, we want to hold each other accountable. So my team and I come in and we act as a guide. It's oftentimes difficult to sort of see the forest for the trees, right? And so it's easier to have someone come in and we have these kinds of difficult, awkward, uncomfortable conversations. And then because I'm not, I'm not a part of your culture, it's, it's easier for me to see the things that might be in, right in front of your eyes than it will be for you. That's true in any kind of deep work that we do. And so we hold each other accountable. We will hold my team and I accountable that we will deliver on what we've agreed to deliver. And we will hold you accountable to do the hard work. Excellent. And then the last one on our list, it's the big one that everyone really wants to hear about, and that's money or fees. So I'd be remiss if I didn't take a moment to stand as an ally for my colleagues in this industry. So for far too long, BIPOC DEI consultants have faced the can't you just give it to me at a reduced cost shenanigans? <laughs> and I have two words to say to that. Stop it. And in case people didn't hear me, I'm going to repeat myself. Stop it. Those are, those are much more polite words than I was expecting, but I'll go with it. <laughs> Knowing me as well as you do, um, those, those are the most polite words I could use. So yes, absolutely. So in this, what we want to do is we want to invest in your people through quality services and in turn, pay those who deliver the quality services just as you would pay for any other required business need. So one more time for the people in the back, for far too long, BIPOC DEI consultants have faced the, can't you just give it to me at a reduced cost shenanigans? Stop it. All right. That's my well, piece me about it. Message received. And I, <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you there. I mean, you know, you want cable TV. It's not free. Right. You want someone yeah. to clean your house. There's a fee. I mean, so, right. you know, the fees are what they are. Yeah, exactly. Let's talk for a minute then about the essentials of a DEI training session. What are the essentials? Sure. Great. So each culture, organization, and situation is specific to that entity, which is why we do not do a check-the-box training for this either. However, we know that inequity and specifically white supremacy is predictable and pervasive. So with that in mind, we recommend the following. So number one is to create a common language, and it goes back to what we did earlier. Define terms that speak to your organization's culture and involve all in that process. So the first one is to create a common language. So you have to have that in order to start along that path to create change. Then the second one is to scaffold curricula on the structural reality of inequity. So for example, 
For far too long, we've all chosen to focus our efforts most exclusively on demonstrated racist behaviors by individuals. And yes, it's necessary to call out or in some instances call in when applicable. However, these individual actions represent drops in this vast ocean. So this is not to minimize the impact or the influence or pain or power individuals' racist actions have. I'm not saying that. I am saying that whacking each mole individually will not dismantle the entire network that is underground. So we're called on to do our internal work to grow, learn, and do better, followed by our external work to create a more just and equitable society. So that external work is not only championing diversity, equity, and inclusion in all spaces we frequent, no matter who is in the room, but it's also working to dismantle the structures that sustain inequity. So we cannot do that if we don't understand the scaffolding that supports inequity. So again, the first step along our path is to create that common language. And then secondly, we want to make sure that any kind of DEI training or learning opportunity is built upon a structure that defines and explains the structural reality of inequity. Number three, identifying and understanding unconscious bias and providing tools to mitigate. Historically, this has been the focal point of all DEI training. And where has that gotten us? Well, the answer is the same thing that I said earlier. If what we've been doing to this point worked, we wouldn't be where we are today. Unconscious bias is an important piece of DEI training. It isn't the whole pie. One of the components that I like to share about unconscious bias training is the current neuroscience research on how all of our brains are wired. From that point, it's a natural step to introduce and talk about shame, something that we've sidestepped for far too long. Okay. Number four, defining and addressing microaggressions. Woo! I could do an entire interview on this topic, but for brevity's sake, I'll say this. If you want to deliver a DEI training that leads to real outcomes, you must include this topic. And it isn't as simple as, here's a quick 30-second module on how not to say stupid stuff. <laughs> there are so many BIPOC thought leaders paving a powerful path on this topic. Listen and learn from them, and then take that to your teams to discuss, dig in deep, and get comfortable with discomfort. And then the last one, number five, draft a roadmap for allyship and accomplices. If you've been paying any attention to anything over the past few years, and allow me to take a moment to call this what it is, a much-needed uprising. You probably also heard and witnessed white people ask repeatedly across social media, for example, what can I do? Tell me what to do. Telling people to Google it, which is what so many of us have done, including myself, <laughs> doesn't create real change, nor does it birth strong, fully functioning accomplices. And I'll define that term in a second. Learning and development opportunities that offer not only scenarios, but also provide learners with actionable steps to guide them are not only valuable, 
but that leads to real change. So back to some terminology here. There's a difference between an ally and accomplice. And whenever I define these terms, I wanna make it very clear that one is not necessarily better than the other. My definitions here come from lifelong activism and social justice work. And so I wanna make that clear as I define them. You may have a completely different definition. Allies mostly engage in activism by standing with an individual or group in a marginalized community, while accomplices stand with and act as an active participant to dismantle structures that oppress individuals or groups. So I'm gonna say those again. Allies mostly engage in activism by standing with an individual or marginalized community, while accomplices stand with and as an active participant to dismantle structures that oppress individuals or groups. So it sounds like accomplices are, are more desirable than allies. Is that right? You know, I would say, because I don't, there are situations where, let me say this, it's situation specific. Sometimes it's more important or it's appropriate to stand as an ally. And I think of times when you stand with someone, you stand with someone in a marginalized group, you stand with BIPOC and support them as they project their voice. Other times it's important to stand as an accomplice and take an active role. So the way I see it for myself is that most of the time I operate as an accomplice, meaning it doesn't matter who is in the room or not, I'm going to champion diversity, equity, and inclusion because I am committed to that. It is important to me, is important to our society, it is the right thing to do. And if I want to see real sustainable change, I must take an active role 24 seven. There are times when I stand quietly as an ally in support of a person of color or someone else from a marginalized group while they say what they need to say. Do you see the difference? Yes. Does that make yeah. it clear? It, it, it makes sense. And I also think that a lot of people are going to have a hard time knowing exactly when it's appropriate to speak up, when it's appropriate to be quiet. And probably by, you know, like my common sense tells me that we need to be forgiving with ourselves over our missteps in this area. Exactly. Which is why it's really important to talk about shame. It's also really important to become comfortable with discomfort because we are gonna make missteps. There is not a formula, and this is one of the things I hear often from white people is, just give me the formula, tell me when I need to speak up and tell me when I need to be quiet. And it's like a muscle. Let's say that you're training for a marathon. You're not gonna be able to run 50 miles or 25 miles from the get-go. You're gonna develop into the ability to do that. And so one of the suggestions that I make is surround yourself with people who are different from you, that you can learn from being in that space. You can stretch and grow and learn, and you will make mistakes. We all make mistakes. I make mistakes. And being humble 
and listening and being surrounded by people who care enough to give you the gift of the emotional labor that it takes to stop and tell you that you've made a misstep is a wonderful gift. That means that someone has taken the time to do that. They're invested in you. They believe that you might actually listen. Yeah, I think that's a really great point that I think that um, everyone can benefit from. I certainly can't in my own life. So those are our five, our sort of your your five steps for your five essentials of a good solid DEI training. So to round out this discussion, then what are the specific action steps that you would recommend for someone who wants to organize a DEI training for their company? Yeah, there is no one path. And we've talked briefly about that for as much as we all be included, love a good list. There's no formula that will deliver success every single time. We know some truths and we can start from there. So this work is necessary and forces at play are predictable and ever present. For some of us, the work is awkward and uncomfortable, and I'm speaking specifically, but not exclusively to white people here. If you can get out of your own way most days and see the lessons as a gift, you'll have a better chance of learning and sustaining what you've learned. So where do you begin? One, you uncover your blind spots. There are a variety of ways to do this. Look into and access as many as you can throughout your life. This work isn't a one and done. It's a lifelong journey, and we need you on the path with us. So, for example, one of the ways that you can uncover blind spots is to research and access free online self-assessments. There are numerous available. Or ask others in your life if they'd be willing to have an honest, awkward, uncomfortable conversation with you while noting that the answer might be no, and no is a complete sentence and valid. And in the case of white people asking BIPOC folks in their lives, recognize that this is emotional labor and what that means for them. And then from there, in terms of uncovering your blind spots, do an honest inventory. Answer the question, what, who, where makes you uncomfortable? So again, You've done some perhaps self-assessments or you've had conversations with people in your life who are willing to put in the emotional labor. Then ask yourself the question and answer it. What, who, where makes me uncomfortable? What does this look like? So, for example, if you're a heterosexual woman who finds it uncomfortable to be in a room full of lesbians, start there. So. Again, where do we begin? Number one is to uncover your blind spots. Number two is to expose yourself. Now, I'm not suggesting that you drop your drawers in public. What I am suggesting is that once you begin to see where your discomforts lie, that you dig in deeper and begin to expose yourself to new ways of thinking, actively seek, build, and maintain relationships with others who are different than you, and push yourself outside of your comfort zone often. And then number three, the last one, read and develop an action plan with accountability measures. People always ask for books, and there are so many great ones out there. It's hard, though, to stay on top of the latest and greatest as much as many of us want to. I don't see this as a race to get to the finish line like we're going through a syllabus. 
if reading alone would achieve the outcomes we seek, again, we'd already be there. Read, but also commit to talking with others, ask for and gain insights from trusted sources, and consider what a trusted source is, and then hold yourself and others accountable and identify what that looks like. And that's our list. That's a good place to start. And it's a lot to do. So again, uncover your blind spots, expose yourself. And for those who really want to read, and I don't see anything wrong with that, read and then develop an action plan with accountable measures. Well, Cindy Chambers of Solutions Arts, I want to thank you for taking part of your afternoon to enlighten us today about the important topic of diversity, equity, inclusion trainings. And for anyone wishing to contact Cindy or her company, the link is going to be in the description of this podcast. But I want to thank you again for being here. Oh, I'm happy to be here. I'm, I'm so excited that we had this opportunity to have this conversation. And thank you so much for inviting me to join you. I'm very honored. And it was, I could spend, you know, the rest of the afternoon talking about this. So I always am grateful that anyone wants to have these kinds of conversations. So thank you so much, Thomas.